we are here to talk about a movie. Yeah. What was that? It was a dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> the dog wanted to watch the movie. Yeah. They oh. watched it without me. Aww. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the 1979, you know, a, a kind of a new coming to the scene here. 1979 <laughs> documentary, The Wobblies. I ended up having to buy it on Prime, which is an ironic thing to buy there, but whatever. Uh, Yeah. So I initially, when we were settling on this, was like, this is always, I've, I watched this before I was really even a communist, like. This has always been on YouTube and you can still find it on YouTube. You have to find like the Spanish subtitled one. It's in English, That's but it's got it Spanish is. subtitles. That's like the only one I think you can find now on YouTube. Well, I should have done that just to increase my vocab. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not bad subtitles. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, it was more of a meaning translation. But the reason is that last year, actually, they released... They did, they did a big release on May Day for this, but Museum of Modern Art did like a 4K restoration oh. of the old thing, and it was published by some other group, I don't know, but like, they did like a re, you know, a republishing of it sort of thing. Mm, okay, a remaster. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So that's why it costs money now, and looks nicer now than it originally did. Okay. I mean, I thought it looked fine, so I didn't really think about that. Yeah. So it was originally from 1979, an oldie but a goodie, which I think kind of, you know, plays a role when you're watching the movie, knowing when it was made, because it talks to a lot of very old people. So us watching it in the 2020s, we're like, well, they're all dead, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah, it was weird just like hearing them say like, yeah, when I was growing up or, I, you know, it was 1915 and I'm on strike. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like I had to do the math, yeah. you know? Yeah. When we were kids, like the dying generation were people who had any memory of World War One. Yeah. Kind of similar, I think, here. Uh, kind of an o- age overlap. That was the these guys are literally not going to be around very much longer. You know, now it's like World War Two. Yes. Those guys are basically out. I don't know. Is that, I think that human passage of time is sort of an interesting, I don't know. Definitely, yeah. This. Yeah, what's what's the upper edge of that? Like, yeah. Yeah. The documentary, The Wobblies, directed by Stuart Bird and Deborah Schaefer. That's what we're taking a look at today. All righty. Let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about the format. So it is heavily uh, interspersed with interviews from... IWW members and agitators and activists and all these really cool old people. They're there to add both the stories of specific strike actions, but also, you know, color and and vibes. (laughs) So uh, do you have a favorite of of the old people? Oh, man. All right. Uh, I'll pick a couple. The two that really jump out for me are the old lady uh, who said yeah these cops tried to ask me out yes i love that one i, I love that her one like she's a badass and so the lumberjack cool. guy the lumberjack guy was sick uh he like played that saw thing yeah the that saw, was crazy uh, the saw harp uh i also liked the old i don't know if she was italian maybe like she had an accent and i couldn't quite place it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I liked her a lot because she, she kind of closes out the, the movie. I thought she the, was great. The ending lady. Yeah, she mm-hmm. was cool. She was very cool. From uh, from the New Mexico thing. Yeah. Okay. Those those are our favorite olds <laughs> up top in case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah. You got, you know, tag yourself basically. And it's always, for these guys, it's an aspirational tag. You want to oh, be. Oh, for sure. You want to be these types of old people. Like, they're cool as fuck. And they're old in like 1979, you know? Yeah, like I was wondering about that because I mean, this documentary goes into the origins and kind of rise and yeah, fall of IWW, and I I wondered like how they felt, like how do they feel now about where the country is in the seventies? Like I was so curious. I wish like there was a part two of like anyway, it's all gone to shit. <laughs> right? Yeah, just like the after hours sort of mm-hmm. interview with all of them just chilling. Like, but yeah, you know, fucking carter or something you know like you could still tell that they really gave a shit like currently too like that that lumberjack was still wearing like the iww buttons and like the old couple um you know she had like a senior power button on and like like i think these people are still like passionate i'm just wondering like where do they direct those passions and like what what are they doing i just want to know everything (laughs) oh yeah Again, aspirational, like, you want to be as cool as these old people are. Yeah, have some cool stories like they do, so. (laughs) Yeah, and just constantly, I don't know, be fighting or angry in, you know, whatever way is healthiest, I guess, for you, but still, keep giving it to him, I guess. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, it starts out talking about, you know, what IWW stands for and where the term Wobblies comes from, which I was like, that's a little bit of an uncomfortable story. (laughs) Yeah, the old man they give that does a little bit of a slur. I mean, wasn't for him, but, you know, uh, he says basically a person of Chinese descent, you know, had trouble pronouncing W. And so then it was translated into I wobble wobble or I, Mm -hmm. you know, and then wobblies. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of awkward. (laughs) Apocryphal tale too, but that's. Yeah. I mean, it's also very believable that that would be the stupid origin story sort of thing shortly before that though i did really like that opening montage of the mug shots yes a lot of hotties in the iww well you know maybe people were just really hot back then i mean stalin comes to mind that's true that's true same era same criminality, but like also <laughs> still hot. Uh, it was just if you were against the establishment back then, you were probably hot. Yeah, it's, that's just how it went. You know, damn. Yeah, those you there were some good mug, mug shots for sure. That's why they call them baddies. <laughs> so yeah, the the opening they talk about it's like I guess they're reading from a court case against some IWW members and asking like, do you have you know, where, where are you from and what's your citizenship? And they're giving all these like really sarcastic answers of like, I'm a citizen of the world and yeah. my country is, you know, the industrial workers and just like, you know, not, not playing along. Yeah. Where's your home? He's like Cook County jail you know, before that. <laughs> a different jail. Yeah. I just, it was like, fuck, I don't know. It was, it was fucking like kind of proud and it was like just real kind of revolutionary sense of, your regular self having died and being this other person sort of, you know, this like real will fight. I don't know. It was cool. It was, it was powerful. It was very cool. They, they kind of start and end with that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. 
I was kind of surprised to see the founder of the ACLU in here, Roger Baldwin. And I was like, yeah. damn, they've come a, quite a ways from that revolutionary origin. But okay. <laughs> I agree. So the ACLU, I think, does maintain vestiges of, you know, in the few instances where it will, you know, keep itself to to just pure kind of free speech sort of angles and stuff like that. And they get into it kind of in the documentary that free speech fights were something that the IWW was involved in early on because mm, so often in that environment, well, the communists were being targeted more so than they are today uh, for free speech and what have you. But part of the reason I think that the ACLU ends up not being as revolutionary of an organization and stuff as it was back then is due to Roger Baldwin himself. Oh. While in his earliest days, he was this sort of fairly radical fellow. Um, even before the recording of this, he, he ends up dying a couple of years after this is released. He became an anti-communist <gasps> um, in the 1940s. Roger. Yeah, basically he sours on the Soviets with the non-aggression pact mm. they have with Germany, which admittedly kind of like a... A gross look. I mean, yeah, it's never, not a good look. I got it. You really don't ever want to be doing that. <laughs> but, you know, that initially, and then um, he ends up leading a drive to purge the communists from ACLU membership. Oh, fuck. Including who they mentioned in the, in the, epi- in the episode. Uh, <laughs> who they mentioned in the documentary, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. <gasps> yeah, I wanted to do more research on her. She sounded cool. Yeah, he was trying to kick her out. And ends up in 1953, you know, once they do like de-Stalinization stuff, he, he writes this big article. It's like, uh, communism, you know, why it's bad. Like communism, oh, it sucks. Okay, okay. So, he pulls an Orwell. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I like, you know, leftism, but not communism. Okay, you know? well, shit. <laughs> but he's, uh, you know, I will say that like his his delivery in the documentary and like his stance there is, seemingly unabashedly pro the IWW at that time. And I don't know if he was trying to kind of go back and say, this this is what we were dreaming of at the time or what, how he, what his inner thoughts were, but it's just interesting to juxtapose to his actions in life, I guess, once he got to a later point. I mean, maybe it was like a true disillusionment of, yeah, I think we were on the right track back then. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they set up, the kind of story arc here. I'm saying story arc. It's real life, but <laughs> they set plot, it up. The A plot. <laughs> the A plot is IWW, uh, the Industrial Workers of the World. And uh, they kind of set it up in contrast to the AFL or is it AF of L? Either way, it's okay. the same. It's like, you know, the US of A sort of thing or the AF of hell as we called mm-hmm. it. I loved that. I love there's so much shitting on it. So what is that? The American Federation of Labor, I assume? Correct. Okay, great. I got it. Gold star. Thank you. I I need those. Uh, I literally, <laughs> like, when I finish a chore, we'll text Kyle about it, and he texts me a gold star emoji. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knows me, and he knows I need it. <laughs> uh, okay. 
So AFL was comprised of more skilled workers, like kind of machinists, things like that. And And we would, you know, couch this with saying all workers are skilled workers, but this is a dialogue in the documentary where they're still kind of using this dichotomy. Yeah, I I had that kind of, I didn't write it down, but I had that mental note too. Yeah. I was like, you know, I get it. I understand because this is what, you know, terminology you guys used. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But even just like watching the footage of you know, all these farmhands and uh, looming process, like textile processes, like all this stuff. I'm like, that looks hard as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I would not know like, how to do any of that shit. The bald manual labor of just like trucking things from here mm-hmm. and there. And the the lumberjack shots looked yeah, in. Those were just stunts. Some people were just doing stunts. Yeah. No, that was just like, <laughs> yeah, Hollywood stuntmen, but actually, and with no safety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. So it seems like the IWW came about to account for changes in industry, you know, coming to mass factories and things like that, that basically created a lot more, quote unquote, unskilled workers. And they were unique in that they catered specifically to them, um, as well as black people and women and immigrants, uh, which were not things that the AFL did very much. Yeah. Well, the NFL was way more exclusionary, not only in terms of that professional aspect, but also uh, they had way more, uh, they had like segregated locals and stuff like that. I mean, they just, that's, they were not about any sort of social mission, any sort of political goal outside of uh, winning better contracts for their workers. Uh, that's, that's all they cared about. Yeah. So we start by learning about some of the different industries that, were involved in the IWW and some of the various like strike actions they're involved with. There's a segment on uh, the longshoremen, uh, specifically the experience of of black longshoremen in um, on the East Coast. And this is where we see some of that footage that just looks super dangerous and really just fucking physically hard, just moving these giant, I guess, bales of cotton, it looked like. And the guys, yeah, and, and the guys talking about like, People were just getting hurt. It was like an NFL game. Like people were getting <laughs> carted off left and right, going yeah. to the hospital. But you know, it's, they, but but these guys were not multimillionaires. That were you know, oh sure, I got hurt and it sucks, toll on my body or whatever. But like, <laughs> and I get like, was it cryotherapy? Right. And <laughs> yeah. All that shit. Those guys were just like they were out of work now mm-hmm. and had to deal with the injury on their own. Yeah, like no safety laws, tons of injuries, no job security. It was very much like a tough fucking luck if there wasn't anything available. And I kind of, to me, this paired with, you know, later, well, the recurring character that I mentioned is my favorite, the the lumberjack guy. Mm, yeah. Uh, later, he's talking about his injuries that he suffered as a lumberjack. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, oh, I got rolled up on by some logs and like, you know, had my gut squeezed out my tail end or something along those lines. And then he like, he's been on screen for however long. And then he shows you like how he's missing like a finger on his hand or something. Oh, I got this cut (laughs) off. And and yeah, I was like, fucking how have you, how have we been talking for so long, man? And you have (laughs) just now bring it up. (laughs) Yeah. It was such a reveal to me. Yeah. I'm like, did I just not pay attention that well? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> was I typing every time you were like talking? Like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, like that and, and really everybody talking about the ways in which their bodies themselves more broadly, but, you know, paid this toll 
of working these jobs. And I don't know. Uh, my thinking here was that this is in some ways natural in any sort of uh, labor endeavor is that you, you know, it's, it's taxing on the human body. I mean, even if you're imagining just a socialist society where, you know, we've kicked out the bosses and stuff, but we still have shit we have to do. You're still going to have, you know, this sort of tax on your body. I mean, really basically until we get to post scarcity replicator stuff, (laughs) we're, we're going to have this sort of shit to deal with on some scale. But I think the two big things are a, Right now, we don't even get anything from it or we get the bare minimum from it because most of the benefits of the work that we do that is taxing on our bodies to whatever extent. Because you and I, we, I mean, we got soft jobs oh, yeah. in comparison. You know? <laughs> we got those soft hands. <laughs> you know, but but there's still like this physical toll. The problem is, well, one of the big problems is that really all the benefits of what we create go to somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. And we're just kind of driven to to line their pockets. But so that's one big thing is that at least whatever we do sacrifice for ourselves or whatever would be literally for ourselves. The benefits would go to us and our communities if we were to do socialism. And then beyond that, we could, of course, like lessen <laughs> the amount that people have to sacrifice their bodies because we would have more people working. We'd have fewer hours. We'd be wasting less resources on bullshit stuff. So, I mean, even beyond when you're talking about scarcity, even before that, before post-scarcity, you'd still have safer conditions and less people getting their fingers chopped off and, you know, Jesus, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think a lot of people view it as, okay, I'll have the exact same job I do today. And it's like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, like the, a lot of industries will be just gone. We don't need insurance. We don't need fucking advertising for the most part uh corporate lawyers yeah yeah, all that shit no that's fine (laughs) just go go away come pick up a fucking shovel and work on your neighborhood greenhouse because guess what that's what you're doing now (laughs) (laughs) and that sounds terrible and you're like oh i don't know how to do that it sounds physically hard i'm a weenie i wouldn't want to do it but also like would i be willing to you know do some physical labor for a few hours a day if it meant my community was like safer and had better resources yeah, I think I would. And it meant also um, working like part time. Yeah, I do that for what, four hours and then I just go go dick around. Yeah, I'm going to work on the greenhouse, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get buff. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> then we um, go have some steak tartare at the local thing. Yeah, here we are. I'm eating and getting buff. <laughs> it's great. Uh, back to olden times, though. <laughs> we dipped into future utopia as usual. <laughs> <laughs> but back in these days, we're talking, yeah, 10 hour days, some some fields, I think I wrote down 14 hours and some of them, really bad conditions is the point. Then we start getting into specific strike actions, uh, I think starting with the uh, textile mills in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Uh, these were mostly comprised of immigrant populations, and they had really low wages, unsanitary housing. And I, I guess back then, like, your housing was kind of tied to your job, yeah? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> long hours, little education, very poor education. And so they went on strike in 1915, and they organized into different committees, which I thought was interesting. They, they had different committees representing all the different nationalities that were present in the workforce, which I'm like, oh, that's smart, because you probably have like language barriers and like mm-hmm. different sets of needs that way. Yeah. 
And the IWW was, I guess, is famous in history for having had this ethnically very diverse makeup. It's uh, one of the huge portions of, uh, or, you know, I guess segments of their immigrant population were Finnish people. The union's only daily newspaper was the Finnish language industrialisti. <laughs> oh. Uh, uh, you know, the Finnish language newspaper of the IWW published out of Duluth, Minnesota. Didn't know there were a lot of Finns up there. <laughs> yeah. That's, that was a, a big deal. They had a Finnish IWW educational institute called the Workers' People's College in Duluth and the Finnish Labor Temple in Ontario, Canada. That one's still standing. It's not like a labor temple anymore. It's just a building and stuff. <laughs> what is a labor temple? Like well, we it, go worship the sickle and cry <laughs> <laughs> and the hammer. I remember we were talking about like the people's, uh, like the like the labor church sort of thing in the Winnipeg. Like it's it's that sort of mm, thing, so of you like go a to social gospel sort of. Well, like you know, but like a Christianity for uh, the people, for the okay, workers, okay. sort of thing. All right, Jesus takes on more of that carpentry role, eh? <laughs> or as the guy, yeah, as the guy said, Jesus saves the willing slaves. Yeah, they had some really good burns. <laughs> I loved that. Uh, the The preacher song was funny too. Oh, that one's yeah, that one just is a banger. Uh, the preacher and the slave. Yeah, that was really good. I didn't realize there was such a large Finnish population. I think that's what's okay. <laughs> I think that's what's kind of interesting about white people because like they are now just white people, but like. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds of years ago, they like were different things. And so you don't think of that. I would never have guessed that like Finland had people come over. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that feels very random. Like I never, you don't see a lot of Finnish restaurants, at least as far as I know. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's it's just not a thing. Uh, they also had a lot of Swedes, particularly exiles from the 1909 Swedish general strike because a lot of them got blacklisted. Oh, okay. Sweden. Maybe we need to do an episode on that one. It could be. Uh, so, yeah, they had Scandinavian socialist clubs. They also, uh, like you mentioned before, they, they're they not segregated. They're, so they're letting in black people, for example, into the uh, union. Uh, a good example of this is Local 8, a longshoreman's branch in Philadelphia. They were led by Ben Fletcher, uh, a black man. He was leading a, a union local of more than 5,000 members, a majority of whom uh, were black people along with more than a thousand immigrants, primarily Lithuanians and Poles, Irish Americans, and numerous white white ethnic uh, people. I think I saw his picture. I think they mentioned that name. It, it yeah, sounds I familiar. I believe so. Everybody was in there. Yeah, that's cool. And women too. Uh, I thought it was funny the the old mm. couple. <laughs> Like the the old guy yes. was like listing like yeah oh, we let yeah, in, we let in you know, anybody yeah. black people race color creed regardless matter. of and, yeah and then she, and she goes and gender yeah and he's, <laughs> and like, he's like oh yeah whatever yeah and she's she kind of scoffs at him she's like yeah yeah that was so funny I love I was that. like you are in trouble later sir yeah <laughs> she's not gonna forget that she one. was yeah she was like come <laughs> on <laughs> you call so yourself funny. a socialist and right she was she was a badass she was great. Back to the textile mill. They go on strike. I they I thought this was interesting. They send their children away to to keep them safe. I'm like, whoa, this is like those like World War II stories you hear about, you know? Yeah. It was like the Blitz. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, I guess, to protect protect them from like police violence, I assume, or or I don't know. It was cooked up as a maneuver by Big Bill Haywood. 
We should do an episode on Big Bill Haber because yes. he's cool as fuck. He's all over this doc too. He's cute. I kind of like just, him. He's just got the the big boy energy. Like, he does. He's he's a vibe. But he's like he's there like uh, he comes in to organize to help organize the the strike and everything. And yes. It kicks off without him, and that's what kind of what I love about the IWW a lot of times is that. They're doing organizing and stuff with people, but usually when the strikes kick off, it wasn't them really pulling the strings. It's them coming in and saying, all right, we're going to throw our weight behind this. You know? Yeah, they're there as like a support function, which is yeah, pretty cool. But it's just so like that makes it more exactly what I was going to say, because it sounded like what happened was there was like a police incident, <laughs> police incident, some, <laughs> some police murdered some women and they arrested a bunch of strike leaders for, you know, inciting violence. Okay, whatever. And that's when Big Bill comes. Big Bill Haywood, he's like a big shot IWW guy by this point, who kind of initially got his start in other small, like AFL style unions before being like, you guys are small bore, you guys are are chumps in comparison. And got he was in on the ground floor with the IWW saying, let's do industrial Unions like we want one big union. We want to fucking mobilize everybody. At some point in the documentary, they have the uh, quote where they have the founding charter of the IWW that says, you know, the working class and the capitalist class have nothing in common. Oh, yes. They need to. You know, we must wage a struggle against them until we control the means of production. Basically, I mean, they just lay it out there. Just they just say it. <laughs> that's I, I, I think that's a primer. That's just like you have to have that as your basic or you're a liberal. Like if you, if you don't have that, you're a liberal reformer. Like what what I loved about this documentary is I think especially in the context of the 70s and these are old people in the 70s. So you would think like, oh, they're probably like pretty conservative or something mm-hmm. like that just going in today without a lot of knowledge about it. And you hear them like lay out these facts very plainly. Like I loved that that older woman. Um, I think she was maybe one of the textile workers. I'm not sure. But she was saying like, she was explaining it. She was like, yeah, we wanted to like have worker owned factories. Who wouldn't like that? Like she puts it like that. Like it's yeah. just so obvious. And What's I'm like, so Man, bad she's about so that. great. Yeah. yeah. She's like, I didn't like it doesn't make sense. You know, like people are getting ripped off. <laughs> instead yeah. of, she put it so clearly of instead of all the profits going to one or two men, we all share them. Who wouldn't like that? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Just clear, clean. Exactly as how it was explained to her. Right. It's just, it's just this, that's how the IWW was able to reach so many people is just like this clear, not academic sort of approach to people of like, Hey, this is your life. Don't you want more control of it? Like, don't, mm-hmm, don't mm-hmm. you want to be the person in charge rather than some asshole? But he ends up, Big Bill. In, yeah, Big Bill ends up in that in the documentary where they show the preamble or something, and then and then they say, "Gentlemen, this is the Continental Congress of the Working Class." That was Big Bill Haywood's introduction <laughs> when they when they were at the the founding convention and everything. <laughs> he just had you know had that kind of folksy works working person way with words uh, with people but they call him in when this strike kicks off and he goes up there and comes up with this idea of like hey this is gonna make the capitalists look like assholes um mm. and it's gonna get hungry kids with you know from striking families that our strike fund's gonna run low and we're not about to be begging uh, the authorities to feed our kids we're gonna 
So they so they put like out newspaper ads out in the East Coast uh, and New York and everything and whatever, and they were they were like, hey, we've got you know basically hitting up liberals and rich socialists, I guess you know whoever would be sympathetic. Hey, could you you know house board you know kids couple of kids yeah you know a progressive wow. cause basically mm-hmm. and so they they. They lined that up, and then they're like, okay, now we're going to ship them off and everything. And actually, the police came out and beat the fuck out of um, the families as they were. The first shipment went out fine, I guess. The second yeah. shipment, they went out and cracked heads and everything else. Oh, my God. And the newspapers are all like, the barbarians here, you know, fucking attacking kids and, and their families and everything. And, you know, it was this big, I mean, it was, it was a pretty big win, I think, for the IWW is like, look at the barbarity you know of the capitalists because it proves like this is why we fucking sent them away because we can't trust you fucks yeah and then like look what you still did it anyway you assholes yeah (laughs) oh my god that's crazy okay well hey once again i think i could be i could be uh child care help when shit pops off i'm i'm down for that i'll watch some kids (laughs) it'll be the moogie (laughs) it'll be the moogie i'll I'll help them (laughs) we'll do crafts or whatever (laughs) (laughs) This kind of sets off a lot of different strikes in in the textile in- industry, including one in Patterson, New Jersey. There's this interview, this this awesome woman who's like, yeah, <laughs> me and my girlfriend would just go get jobs at different uh, textile factories and start unionizing. It was... <laughs> And she's and no one would suspect us because we looked so cute and innocent. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> oh, she was great. <laughs> I loved it. And the other lady who, when they... Uh, called her in or whatever mm, you're like, yes oh she said you know you gd snake you gd snake and she was just like oh well, you know your honor i, I don't, don't talk use language like that, like yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like get out of here kate smith pay attention uh, next time yeah yeah and then that same cop fucking asked her out oh my god what and an she was idiot like, no i don't go I don't out with date cops. fucking cops <laughs> i don't great, date pigs bitch great <laughs> <Just> lady <laughs> <laughs> yeah badass yeah i mean this is the section where they, they get into kind of the the women's participation in in the iww including elizabeth Gurley finn is it Gurley? yeah Gurley okay. flynn yeah flynn okay i missed that l i i kind of want to do some research on her she sounded pretty cool yeah no uh she was a founding member of the aclu so like, okay like roger baldwin fellow comrade there she was also uh, a leading organizer in the Wobblies, like one of their main guys. Also, when they're talking about like the free speech fights and stuff that they did, she was heavily involved in that. For instance, in Spokane, Washington, she chained herself to a lamppost when they were go- coming out to arrest free speech advocates. She was like, well, you're going to have to get Fuck through the you. fucking yeah, <laughs> chain here. She later accused the police of using the jail as a brothel, an mm. accusation that prompted them to try to confiscate all copies of her industrial worker newspaper she had with her uh, that was reporting the charge. She also later was a member of the Communist Party USA. Very cool. Starting in 1936, wrote a feminist column for its journal, The Daily Worker. So, yeah, cool. She actually died in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, like, while she was visiting there and had, like, a state funeral with, like, Red Square processions and stuff because she was cool yeah i mean it sounds like here she she was like organizing the women specifically and holding meetings for them 
I know. She just seemed really badass. Um, but yeah, so the strike gets going. Cop's gonna cop. Bashing <laughs> in his heads, the usual. And it seems like it culminated in a man getting shot while holding his baby. Yeah. Um, she describes the man getting killed and the, having a big funeral for him. Ugh. And then it seems like they, they lost that strike, which sucks. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. In the course of the documentary, they kind of oscillate between, oh, this was successful, this was not, or whatever. I think the more mm, powerful uh, story that ties these all together is that while they do sometimes make some gains, uh, you know, they do have sometimes have big setbacks or whatever, they're constantly like developing this mm, solidarity, this fighting capacity throughout. Yeah, I think they are getting more organized. They are getting more tactical, like, you know, the the sending the kids away for that other one. Like, they're learning a lot and they're growing a lot, it seems like. Yeah. One of the quotes they have, I think it's in this one, they're, they're saying, you know, we're, we're committing one of the most violent acts possible by refusing our labor. You know, we're, we're this is... Kind of getting that, I think, again, that class consciousness of saying, of a, of a class becoming itself, of realizing its power is, this is our power. Like, our power is, and this is alluded to when we come to the close of the documentary, is our power is nothing moves without us, right? Yeah. And I think it's a big Bill Haywood clo- uh, quote where he says, let them weave cloth with bayonets, you know, let let them send in the soldiers, you know, what are they going to do? Yeah, like they don't have the skills to do this. That's us. They don't have the numbers to do this. That's us. Like realizing the importance of their roles. Um, I think it's really powerful. And what else is really powerful is through this, through the previous the Lawrence strike and, and really all of them, you see kind of the power of song kind of uniting people. And and they're, they're talking to, to all of these old people so many years later. And pretty much to a person, I think they sing, they sing some part of their song that, you know, one of the jams that they, that was, that was their particular one. You yeah. Know? That they still remember and yeah. can sing. <laughs> There's some real bangers in here. Uh, my favorite was Tarara Boomdie being a union <laughs> song. I did Google it. It has origins elsewhere. Uh, but they, like a lot of these songs, it's reappropriated from like folk music and, and just other old classic tunes. Yeah, that one was a like Joe Hill wrote new lyrics for it or whatever. That one was so good because it was just like sabotage your workplace, talk right. about our boom deal. <laughs> <laughs> it made a noise that uh, way and wheels and bolts and hay went flying every way. That stingy rube said, Well, a thousand gone to hell, but I did sleep that night. I needed it all right. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, hell yeah. <laughs> if you are familiar with the Aristocats, that is the song the old man <laughs> sings as he makes his way to visit the old lady. <laughs> creme de la creme de la Edgar. Oh, yes. I haven't watched that in so long. Is that is that a different old man? Different old person? man. It's the lawyer. Edgar's the mean guy. Edgar's the butler. The, yeah, okay. Yeah. Different I need to rewatch Aristocats. I watched it fairly recently. It's, <laughs> it still holds up. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's super racist at one point. Just ignore that part. That's okay. That's okay. We were doing this documentary where the guy initially says, yeah. about, <laughs> like two lines in and the guy like goes on to be 
blemishless the rest of the yeah, thing. Yeah. He just like you know. it's just truly a vocabulary thing for yeah. him. Like he's just like that's just what they're called. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> okay, insane. well, don't do that anymore. So my favorite Yeah, what was your favorite I mean, song? So I mentioned earlier in the good well, did I, I didn't mention it on the show earlier, but when you got into the mm. call I was singing in the good old picket line just mm, to myself yeah. waiting for you to join. Uh that one I think is my favorite. It actually apparently is from an old Tin Pan Alley song. Mm, I'm not like that from is. like the nineteen hundreds or whatever. Just it was like a like a commercial nowadays, just like a kind of a pop song, you know, it was just mm, yeah, someone yeah. wrote it, someone else sang it. And Hold the Fort. I love Hold the Fort. Yeah, Hold the Fort's really good. Hold the Fort's up there for me. I really liked that I ended up learning new verses to songs that I knew throughout. People would just be singing this. Oh, okay, yeah, that that totally goes. I know the song you're singing. I haven't heard that verse, but cool. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think they learned that songs were a great way to spread their message. Like, I there was a line that the IWW would send out, um, basically like a membership kit uh, to to leaders of, mm-hmm. and it would have like you know, a membership card and, you know, some, con- some extra constitutions, I guess, if you need to like make a new like union right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, every single one had a little red songbook, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. The little man guy said, uh, always, but always the little red songbook. We move over to the West coast now where this is starting to get more into some of the free speech battles as well as, uh, the lumberjack unions, um, some farmhand unions as well, and in these different areas, you had these these conflicts. So one in Everett, Washington, in 1915, mm-hmm. the IWW brings a bunch of speakers, and because cities had started passing ordinance banning street meetings, except for the Salvation Army because they were religious, and mm-hmm. uh, the documentary takes a, a fun you know 10 minutes or so to bash on. <laughs> On religious hypocrisy. It's very fun. The Starvation Army. Is <laughs> I love that so much. The Starvation <laughs> Army. Yeah, don't support them. They're also super homophobic. However, uh, so yeah. <laughs> if you give a donation, uh, uh, this happened to me, uh, Whataburger or whatever, hey, you want to do a little, I was like, because uh, they were like, oh, we'll give you like a Whataburger coupon or whatever. I was like, okay, fuck, fine. And so <laughs> I do that. And I like, quadrupled the amount he he was like oh you know donate this and you'll get this i had like I, he just they he gave me like double what he said and then in my bag there were extra of these oh. so it paid off okay okay uh, for the small price up. of what supporting homophobia now what are these yeah say? i i i heard that they're they're not great on that i'm not super clear on the accusations so they're do probably Google. pro-israel or something too I'm sure. <laughs> Everyone bad is. Hey, Whataburger's not. Apparently they are. <laughs> as far but. as we know. <laughs> so yeah, you you have um, all, all these arrests of speakers. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. Like they describe it of they, you know, they have a crowd. A guy starts talking. They arrest him. So another Someone, guy just fucking gets up there. <laughs> as he was saying. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> before I was so rudely interrupted. <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> Yeah, like there's just a line. It's like fucking karaoke, but very high stakes karaoke. <laughs> like who's next? Uh, and and then the jails get filled. And I there was like a, a funny painting of like just like these dudes like up 
on like the bench in prison, just continuing to speak, like to orate. Yeah. <laughs> so they just moved the party to the jail, basically. <laughs> As I was uh, saying, yeah. Anyway, now that we've changed locale, <laughs> yeah, they, they describe it as almost like they're intentionally filling the jails, so it'll be too much trouble to to keep them all arrested. Yeah, like, you mean, have to fucking feed us. So too expensive <laughs> for the city, really. Hmm. Uh, so in Everett, they they plan. Okay, we're gonna bring a literal boatload of socialists out here. <laughs> yeah. I want to be on that party boat. It sounds well. I don't want to be on it at the end, but the beginning, I want to be there. I want to be there for the first cool. half of the trip. Yeah, they were like <laughs> singing, singing songs. <laughs> and he's just like basically anywhere we went, man. We were just belting them out, you know. Always jamming. And it's just like hell yeah. But the party boat comes to an unfortunate end. Uh, they they pull up to the port, and the cops won't let them land. They end up firing at them, and five men die. They're, like, shooting people who jumped overboard into the water. Like, it's fucking nasty. I thought that was wild. Uh, the old guy yeah, says he's got... The, the overalls. Yeah. He's got this, like, kind of what we refer to as, like, a dog voice because it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know. <laughs> That's how we. That's how deep voice. we voice our dog or something. But he's yes. like, "Oh yeah, well they were going through," the... and that was just <laughs> voice. It was kind of comforting in a way. But he's like, he's very resolute. He says, um, "They tried to say they didn't shoot people in the water, but I saw it with my own eyes." He's he's like, uh, you know, I, we were there. We and he describes what happened. Uh, I mean, he, the way he describes it, eventually, essentially, is like they were just kind of. You know, lying or gaslighting the whole situation. Yeah, or like the press was lying. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he's like, "I'll never forget it. Like, I am scarred from this. I saw this." And I don't know. It made me think, like, how, you know, uh, how resistant to that are we? Are we nowadays? Comparatively, I feel like, you know, we see a lot of things, but then you know, maybe there's. There's a lot more doubt as far as like, oh, what did you see on a video online or what did you read in a story? And then it was retracted unless we literally have firsthand information, which we increasingly don't. How confident are we now with real stories versus official stories? Yeah, yeah. That I think the truth has gotten a lot squishier these days, which is really unpleasant. Because you see, like, you know, I mean, hell something of equivalent stakes if you're looking at gaza now mm-hmm. you know they're, they're gonna... eleven thousand, i think is around the the current death toll yeah much higher than five and yeah you know oh that hospital you saw that was bombed it wasn't bombed by us or you know oh this person that was killed oh what they weren't killed by us is like all these assassinations like there's so much of that journalists that's getting... being killed and then mm-hmm. you know, israel's like no we didn't do that and then Not literally reuters comes out and says no sorry we like spent a lot of time studying that because that was our reporter uh-huh you kind of killed you our killed guy we, we were pretty sure here are the here's the evidence we're pretty sure it was you in a year, it's no one's going to be saying that. They're just going to be like, oh, you know, I mean, some people die, but like it's, you know, they're going to be writing it off in so many different ways. And, you know, how many people are we still going to have with us because of the genocidal campaign? But also how many people are going to be willing to say like that, you know, we're from imperial countries that can come back to safety and then or we will be willing to say, no, I saw this with my own eyes. Like I was traumatized by this, like. 
No, they lit. They did this. They are lying about what what happened. Like this guy is willing to do. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And higher population of witnesses. The, the Palestinians are getting wiped out. So like, it we're losing those chances all the time. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw I saw like a post the other day that was like, yeah, this is really making me understand like how the Holocaust happened. This is how, you know, like yeah. this is making me understand how slavery for, went on for so long. This is an atrocity that's happening before our eyes. And so many people are willing to just so many different avenues of disinformation, of, of vague hand wringing, of you know, downplaying just all this, di- these different tactics to get us to look the other way or downplay it in some way. Yeah. Ugh, it's gross. You thought we couldn't bring it back to Gaza, but we did it. <laughs> <laughs> I did think it was interesting. One, one thing stuck out to me when they were kind of the lead up to the showdown of the violence in this episode was that the the same guy we were talking about, he describes overalls. Yeah, he describes coming up to a to a scene and he was like, Well, we knew there was gonna be trouble because the guy had a gun. And there was this sort of and there was another another one of the strikes that does the same thing, where they essentially have this, you know, popular revolutionary sense of identifying someone with arms as being pro-property and pro-government. Yeah, I think that might be in one of the later, like the railroad situation, that might have been like the guys with the bayonets. Yeah. That sounds kind of familiar. But yeah, like, I think this documentary is extremely telling in terms of the cops. Like, it, you can you can just see blatantly cops protecting capital. There's this great, and by great, I mean horrific quote... <laughs> from from i think maybe it's like a sheriff or it's some sort of some sort oh, of authority the, no, guy it's a it's the fucking college shithead cops they call in on the lawrence strike okay yeah and and he proudly is saying like not a single dollar of property was harmed i'm like yeah you cracked open the heads of like tons of fleeing families you fuckhead <laughs> but don't worry i saved the factory they called in from harvard or yale or something they mentioned like they called him in from oh college or something it was just assholes they probably did that like for free like they probably paid for a ticket like oh i get to bash in some pores right yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love this This is human sport human hunting the greatest the most dangerous game there you go (laughs) exactly (laughs) they get their like safari outfits on (laughs) i say capital let's go have at them (laughs) Uh, it's just this this uh popular notion that we have nowadays of Tread, don't tread on me. Mm-hmm. And oh, you have to have your AK so you can fight against the government when they come to try to take your guns, whatever. And I, it's like the deeper popular sentiment. Like before that, there was that guy's got a gun. Like <laughs> that seems dangerous. Yeah, is this guy like packing because he's like gonna do something for the government? Like it, it, it it's it's. It's seen less as like a way to rebel against the government as like an extension of the government's power, you know, doled out to a few of its corrupted, you know, the people that's corrupted among you that they're going to now, you know, enforce the state's jackbooted, you know, pressure on your neck sort of thing. I mean, I think back then, too, police forces were 
I mean, I guess they had fewer uniforms going on and like, you know, you could you could deputize people and shit like that. So maybe it was less obvious who and who wasn't a cop. Right. But then if you're like openly packing heat, then yeah, Yeah, it's like you are here to shoot somebody. I mean, it's (laughs) like you listen to how gun owners talk about guns and they're like, yeah, don't point unless you mean to shoot. And I'm like, maybe we shouldn't point (laughs) or maybe we shouldn't have the gun. You know, like it just seems so extreme just to be like, I own this so I can murder a person. Like, okay, are you sure? Why though? (laughs) Yeah. You could just not. Oh, and you know, it's, it's a weird power fantasy thing. Cause they immediately go into like, well, if someone's doing X, Y, Z and I'm like, when has that ever fucking happened? Yeah. You know, <laughs> if I look around and nine out of 10 people I can see have been shot and are bleeding out on the ground, <laughs> well, check to see if you're dreaming. Like that's yeah, probably like, not that's happening. Pretty unlikely. Like I live in a kind of sketch neighborhood and we have had, I think one incident and it was fine. They rifled through a car and didn't ha- get anything out of it. It was fine. Damn. Better luck next time, guys. <laughs> yeah, you got my husband's business cards. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats. Anyway, we've got the lumberjacks. They got really bad conditions over there in the Pacific Northwest. Rotten food, lice. They show this guy scratching so much. I was just like, ugh. <laughs> Uh, bugs in the beds, no sanitation, uh, just tons of injuries. That, that, that was the footage I was particularly like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like to, to saw this giant fucking tree, they had these guys on these boards then they were just like standing on these really thin, couldn't have been more than like six, probably four inches wide and, and just fucking going at it. It was crazy. <laughs> the, uh, the timber beasts, they call them. I mean, lumberjacks are still one of the most dangerous professions you can do in the States, right? Like, yeah, no, by a, f- a lot. Like multiple <laughs> factors above cops who are not oh, even cops in are second like the, place. No, not even close. It's like lumberjacks, like all these other jobs before them. I think like crab fishing, just, just fisheries in general, pretty dangerous. But yeah, so they're talking about their really bad conditions. And uh, they also talk about the farmhands. Uh, they're working like $2 a day, 8 to 14 hours. And this is where we kind of start hearing about sabotage. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, we get a couple of different stories about about the origin of the word sabotage. Uh, the classic one. Conflicting stories, yes. Cause I, I, so they show a bunch of these posters, by the way. All of the posters in this fucking rock. Like, oh my yeah, god. <laughs> total fire. I also wrote that. I was like, all of the propaganda posters, great. I mean, they're so good. Uh, also, tons of black cats in it, so you know I love it. And yeah, so the, they show a bunch of posters, and they start talking about sabotage, and they start showing this this fucking like wooden shoe. It looks like a mini mouse shoe, but it's made out of wood. Like it's like Dutch, I guess. Yeah, it's like a clog. Like a clog. Yeah, that's the word. And uh, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And they explain the the kind of classic story uh, is that a French worker named Sabot. Uh, wanted to rest so he threw his wooden shoe into the machinery and i'm like i mean that's one way to get a fucking break man (laughs) oh i thought it was um that i didn't know i didn't know his name was that i thought he was a worker who was wearing a sabot which was a wooden shoe nope sabot is the name of the shoe might be but then not everyone agreed so he says basically um it doesn't is he just says like no it's not from the sabbath the thing and it's not it doesn't mean burning things down oh that's right that's he's right. like i like this distinction yeah because he's like why like we you know it's it's sort of like the distinction we draw with the luddites is they weren't just like 
destroying all the factories or we're destroying the particular parts that like made things worse for them. You know, and he's saying like, why would you destroy your livelihood? The thing we want to take over. Yeah, like take it over, like make it yours. (laughs) Like that's better. He says sabotage is the conscious withdrawal of efficiency. I love this definition. Uh, and, And they talk about how different workers approach that. The lumberjacks walked off the job early and <laughs> just were like, yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. And yeah. they just never did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. just like, sometimes how I run my work life, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> They're like, oh, we have a 10-hour work day. Like, okay, all right, all right. Well, we worked eight. We'll work two for you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love that. I, I wonder how many days they got away with that. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the old lumberjack guy said, uh, you know, he he credited the IWW was saying like this was you know the best tactic they had was this on the job strike where essentially you're still working and you're still ripping this you know ripping this guy off in terms of getting your check or whatever but you're slowing everything down you're he he's like it's even better than the taking over strikes that they had later this is what uh, he called them the sit down strikes that's what they're officially called. Where like later they would occupy like Flint, Michigan. They had the Flint sit down strikes. They'd occupy these automobile plants and stuff, and that's better because they can't bring in strike breakers and things. But he's like this. I mean, you're like you're still literally collecting your check, but you're still like fucking them over, working slow, taking up their space, and their I mean their productivity is tanking while they're still having to pay you. Yeah, they're they're saying they they could bring it down by like fifty percent the the productivity. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean I believe it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can do less work. Trust me. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that is a really interesting tactic. And, and I mean, with the loggers, they they did it so they could get that eight hour work day that they were doing. Uh, then they, <laughs> this is the point of the documentary where they have the uh, awesome cartoon. Oh my god, we gotta talk about this fucking cartoon. Little Red Hensky. All right. So that isn't the name of the cartoon. <laughs> no, I had to do some Googling. I, I did a little a little poking around. You found this it? was produced by Disney in 1925. So a little bit later than when most of the events of this story are happening. It's called Alice's Eggplant. Yes. Did you find out the conclusion to this story? Because it's fucking bonkers. I watched the cartoon. You watched it? Yeah. Okay. I didn't watch it. I should have, but I got lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting the cartoon this is before disney is like you know disney like he's some chump ass animator and he he gets pressured basically they're like felix the cat he's cool as fuck i thought that was felix i wasn't sure if it was nah so he was oh, he's a knockoff yeah he's a knockoff of felix what's his name felipe no he's not Felipe. <laughs> uh what is he called he's called Julius. Julius. The ca- okay. That still sounds kind of similar. Like still kind of Roman in origin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of Felicis, it's Julius. Um, Julius the cat. They were like, you got to make something similar to Felix. And he's like, okay, Julius, I <laughs> okay. guess. He's like, this is this kind of shitty. This is pretty much exactly the same. Like, it we looks don't care. literally the same. Okay, great. So he's like, okay. All right. And so they make Not a bunch a of, of copyright laws with- yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so they make a lot of shorts with Julius the cat. And this one is like this series where they have this little kid in it, Alice. Interesting though, it's a mix of of video of, of real real Alice interacting with cartoons. I didn't think people really did that much back then. I this thought that is, was cool. Yeah, it's kind of a prototype, I guess. 
basically they're running this idyllic chicken farm where okay sometimes felix kind of berates the chickens whenever they don't produce enough even in the like you know full-on short or whatever that uh, you know unclipped for this episode Mm -hmm. that still happens but like it's billed (laughs) as like that's not so bad you know and then she gets this big order for like oh we please give us a lot of eggs like fifty thousand mm-hmm. eggs or something <laughs> and she's like oh great but just at that time wouldn't you know it this dastardly hen <laughs> with a long beard and like little cap <laughs> in their bag which conveniently says their name and where they're from <laughs> <laughs> little red hensky from moscow <laughs> Bolsheviki in parentheses IWW or something like that, it, right? Yes, yeah, like overlabeled as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a Ben Garrison cartoon. Oh, that's so funny. It was a little hen. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's funny. I actually looked up a few. I was trying to find this full length thing. I A couple different sources whenever I like opened the video. It was like, uh, part of this had been edited out and it doesn't show the part where Little Red Hensky shows up from Moscow or whatever. Like, apparently, they have been posting a couple of these that, like, just don't have that little... Oh, that's funny. ...anti-communist aside thing. Interesting. But I found one that actually had it. Anyway, she, like, packs away her fake beard and mustache thing under the <laughs> railroad tracks along with her incriminating uh, bag. And it's yes. kind of like, <laughs> you know, silent <laughs> film, but, like... Yeah, yeah. Know, visibly seen to scheme and then goes into the farm. Oh, that's so good. And then just like the documentary shows, starts riling them up, starts agitating and saying shorter, you know, shorter hours, smaller eggs, uh, all this sort of thing. And then kind of how it plays out is the little girl goes up and is like, no, you can't go on strike. I need my eggs. And they're like, oh, you want fucking eggs? We'll show you eggs. (laughs) They start throwing eggs at her. Hell yeah. So good. The conclusion of this cartoon is crazy. Yeah, she organizes a cockfight. Yeah, she finds a couple of the of the roosters just kind of fucking around and fighting because they're just mad at each other. And she's like, "Hey, wait a second. What? We, can we put you guys in the ring and then we'll sell <laughs> tickets at one egg a pop?" Which I don't think they had five thousand hens on chickens. This. Yeah, so, so you're not going to make your order. But somehow it works out. But okay. Uh, it, insane co- complete with like some random you know extended universe friend of uh julius is showing up and being like i want to go and he's like J- you can't fucking lay eggs what are you doing here you know and he's like don't don't worry about it. actually i can oh whoa look at that and like sits down on the thing but like steals uh-huh. an egg from the <gasps> egg basket and puts it so julius turns around and he's like oh fucking that's hilarious like you're gonna lay an egg you know sitting there trying uh-huh. to lay an egg you silly guy and he gets up and like walks over the door and like anyway you know and it's easy egg he's like whoa oh, oh, you know just <laughs> classic stupid Complete with egg pranks yeah just egg pranks that's what we used to do good good he also like wrung like a towel three eggs out of the snake that like snuck up and ate <laughs> some of the eggs what just the like, fuck? Blah, 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 you know, just that's funny. Uh, but they so at the very conclusion, they load up the truck with all the 5,000 eggs or whatever, and the girl's like, Okay, great, let's take these off to the market. And they zoom off, and the tailgate just opens up, and all the eggs go good, and fuck just this splat. Bitch. <laughs> and that's the end of the cartoon, is they just fail. 
That's amazing. Okay, I'm glad she got her comeuppance. <laughs> Fuck this this fucking child <laughs> boss <laughs> slash yeah. cockfight organizer. <laughs> Animal cruelty. Oh my gosh, that's funny. I'm glad you watched the whole thing. I should have. It was, um, it's very good. It was a little bit of waste, I think, but it was it was kind of <laughs> funny. Yeah, that was an incredible little piece of propaganda. <laughs> There's a lot of them in here. Uh, there's some really good like animated political cartoons that are just so so cool slash terrible. <laughs> yeah, the like uh, the oh no, here come the clouds of anarchy, lawlessness yes. edition. <laughs> like, oh oh no, yeah, the Hall of Justice. You're gonna throw a bomb on the Hall of Justice? Oh no! Why would you do that? <laughs> it's justice. Oh yeah, How are you yeah. Do there justice? was one. There was one produced by Ford that oh. kind of came towards the end. That was fucking funny. Uh, with a quote, Bolshevists are the rats of our civilization. <laughs> like, I think you are a little turned around there. Which, hell yeah. I mean, rat pride. Let's go. Yeah. If I'm a, if that's true, and then call me a, you know, put whiskers on me. I'm a fucking rat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. I, I just love that it was made by Ford. <laughs> And Disney, I think it's kind of funny, too. They they had a series of strikes, like, in the 40s, so... Yeah, yeah no, Walt Disney was notorious, <laughs> like, like right-wing, anti-union guy. Like, mm-hmm, he sucked. Mm-hmm. We talk more about different workers' plights, including uh, the plight of seasonal work. I thought this was interesting. They, they tell kind of like a... It's almost like a joke, I guess, of, you know, a girl answers the door because someone's knocking mm. and, and she goes, mom, there's a bum at the door. And uh, her mom says, well, it's harvest season. That man's not a bum. He's a worker. And then harvest season ends. She gets another knock at the door. It's the same guy. And she goes, mom, there's a worker at the door. And she goes, that's not a worker. It's a bum. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, they, they show like all these like depictions of men just, just being in like homeless camps basically. And like riding the rails to find work. Like, uh, I remember we had gotten a listener email a while back about like the connection between kind of what we would consider quote unquote hobo culture um, to like to union and, and labor actions or labor movements. Yeah. That was um, interesting. I think in the documentary when they're talking about the railroad companies kind of putting the squeeze on people, shaking them down. Yeah. And saying like, Oh, you gotta, you gotta pay this to get here or whatever. And Basically, the IWW put together um, the was it the Flying Squadron? Flying Squadron, yeah. And basically said, "Nope, we ain't putting up with that shit." Mm-hmm. They beat up like the fucking like the engineers and all these like enforcers, basically <laughs> from the train companies, trying to like come shake them down for things like you know a pocket watch or a knife or whatever, just like trying to get more money out of them. It's fucking cool. It's the flying squadron's crazy. So apparently like these trains would get hijacked because you had union leaders traveling on these things with union funds, which could be like thousands of dollars. Uh, And so this like just independent little, (laughs) you know, this, this IWW squad here were there to prevent that. Uh, And, and they would, they cut IWW into the faces of these guys that were like trying to hijack the train. That's insane. <laughs> In my kind of reading about the IWW kind of adjacent to this, uh, there came across my eyes, this term, the overalls brigade. Mm. I mean, I wear a lot of overalls, so 
Well, it reminded me of this kind of, of the of the flying squadron or whatever, this kind of, you know, subsection or whatever. Uh, the overalls brigade was a group of wobblies. Uh, they wore overalls with jet black shirts and red bandanas around their necks. Uh, they wore IWW buttons or whatever and rode the rails from Portland to the uh, to Chicago, uh, stopping in working class communities along the way and holding like propaganda meetings, uh, singing songs, selling literature, and they rode in this cattle car called the Red Special. They ate in hobo jungles and preached revolution in prairie towns. They were kind of like, I don't know, itinerant preachers, but as like, you know, as commie IWW people. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, maybe a little less violent, I guess, than, than the... Just just rambling leaders. Yeah. That's you know. cool. I can fuck with that. I can make that outfit right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Flying Squadron were tough as fuck. They referred to... Um, Greasing the rails. Yeah, that was throwing like a guy <laughs> onto the rails <laughs> and running him over. Yeah, the because uh, would be hijackers. You were saying, oh yeah, they're you know they're going to try to rob the place for the union funds, which basically they knew the government wasn't going to help them get or anything. That's true. So it was like, well, you're the only recourse there. You're the only way to stop this from happening. So they just Jesus <laughs> would grease somebody. Now, I think this is something we would do well to keep in mind because it was the old man uh, with the glasses, um, the guy with the who, whose, whose wife has the senior power. Yeah, yeah. Button. And he says um, that we were rebellious slaves and there's nothing more dangerous than rebellious slaves. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to keep that in mind because I think the capitalists know this too. We'd like to repeat it on the show, you know, this sort of word of caution, uh, generally speaking, when it comes to violent repression and what the capitalists are willing to resort to, it can usually get worse. Like, yes. So, so, so much worse. Yeah. So that's, you know, something to always be wary of because one big cause of what would make the capitalists get worse about things would be when they start to actively worry that their slaves are rebelling. I mean, we saw this in the big uprisings that we had in this country, you know, back in 2020 mm-hmm. and everything. We we saw them get We saw on the their fear heels. in their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and we saw what that led to to people in the streets, yeah. you know. And it'll happen anytime we push the button. It's, it's, it's something you've just got to be worried about when, when you start talking to your liberal friends and stuff and they say, well, you know, we have to get out there. We have to show ourselves and we have to be out in the streets and be, you know, and, and be nonviolent and stuff. It's like, well, if, if you are doing anything that is seen as changing anything worth a damn at all, you're going to get some violence. Yeah. It's going to come to you. Or you didn't do anything like, or you should have stayed home. <laughs> if you don't get violence visited upon you, you wasted your time. Yeah, I, I think I've heard a lot of of hand wringing to that effect of well, why are the Palestinians just doing peaceful resistance? I was like, well, first motherfucker, they tried that, and guess yeah. what? They got shot. Mm-hmm. Like the everyone got wiped out who tried to do those things. Organizations got wiped out who tried to do those things. Like those were shut down, and that's what happens when you try to radically change the system. Like it, you can't just like politely ask over and over. And if you start making big enough asks, like, it doesn't matter how politely you put it, you're going to get some violence. Yeah. Or, you know, on on the flip side of that, 
if the tactic of nonviolence takes over your meeting, your, your mission, such that it eclipses your mission and your mission sort of like atrophies by the wayside of the, the ends of your means, which is nonviolence. That is to say, you lose track of, you know, and, and you deprioritize, well, we're really fighting for this. And it's like, well, are we fighting so much as asking politely? And, you know, you get more into that, that you lose relevance. And yeah, people are going to leave you alone more. And, and, you know, in the case of Gaza, yeah, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to suffer a lot still, but like the conversation is going to move past you and be, you know, you, you, you run the risk of basically being forgotten and being quietly exterminated. And, and it goes, I guess, I think for a lot of movements of like, oh, you just kind of, you know, fall by the wayside and no one thinks about it anymore. Oh, should we be worried about whatever? Cause you know, that's, that's just not important anymore. Those guys like shut up a long time ago. Yeah. I think it's, it's easy to claim that you want nonviolence. Like, yeah, I fucking want that too. But I don't think that's going to necessarily work. Like, yeah, I would, I would love it if everyone just, the capitalists just, just had a fucking change of heart Grinch style. <laughs> I'm sorry. We were being you know, too capitalist. Right. <laughs> I'm going to call down all my goons. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Probably not cool if true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Let's see. We're on the rails. Oh, I like this other railroad story, which was uh, you had you had this uh, strike going on in Washington. I love how much strike action is Washington. I visit there frequently. So I'm like, I'm like recognizing all the small towns they're talking about. I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) cool. (laughs) Spokane, I didn't know you're so cool. Yeah. So they were building a dam out there and they went on strike and they were trying to ship in scabs from Minnesota. So the IWW intercepts this train and makes the scabs get off and takes anyone who like they were able to convince to get on their side to stay on the train. And I guess like the train people like didn't notice or like the, you know, I don't know if they had any like supervisors or whatever. I guess the supervisors were made to get off. And so they were just like eating high on the hog on the fucking luxury train <laughs> over to Washington. They fed him for like three days or whatever. Uh, then they get to Washington and just fucking join the strike. <laughs> <laughs> the company's like, oh, don't worry. We've got people coming over here to break the strike. And then some fucking yahoos come off. Like, yeah, so just like singing songs like, hell yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> just drunk off of all the wine in there. Yeah. Oh, man. I bet train drunk is fun. <laughs> Trying to walk down that, that aisle. Oof. Let's see. I mean, the West Coast overall is bumping. You got the, the general strike in 1917, uh, which was bumping until they decided to use the army to break the strike. So that's fucking The cool. lumber organizing drive? I believe so. Yes, because this was after World War One was happening. And uh, since the IWW had a lot of influence in lumber organizations in the Pacific Northwest, they were like, yeah, we're still going on strike. Uh, AFL had agreed to a no strike policy, but IWW was like, fuck y'all. <laughs> yeah, there was this stupid kind of patriotism that I think was very, ex- the documentary paints it as very exposed in World War I, and, and they in the interviews, it comes across as like, yeah, all the workers, you know, lots of the workers were in on this and basically knew this is a bunch of baloney. Like, this is bullshit that we should, the the old lumberjack guy is like, oh, I went up and down the, you know, because he was like, yeah, I was young <laughs> and stupid and ended up going to the war because I was just a dumbass. 
but he's like, yeah, you know, this, this kid was like, oh yeah, we're in the war because, you know, France and England and Italy owe us money. <laughs> and so he just took him up and down the trenches like, hey, yeah, do you, does uh, France and Italy and... <laughs> Oh, you money personally. Yeah. Everyone's like, fucking, what are you talking about? He's just like trolling this dude, you know? Yeah. I I thought it was interesting. It was kind of a, it was wishy-washy from certain points of view. Like, I think the, I want to say it was the ACLU guy who was like, yeah, like we let everyone decide personally what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess like in terms of whether or not you were pro-war or whether or not you enlisted. But I think, yeah, I, I think realistically, or maybe more people in the IWW were more likely to be anti-war because they, they could see through like the class nonsense. Yeah, I think that, that probably would have been a good organizational stance. I think that they may have been trying to pull a Bolshevik stance mm. without necessarily being um, completely aware of their organizational tactics, maybe, but like... Radicalizing the army. Yeah, we're going to take soldiers, too. Like they're, Yeah, they're like working. we'll take all comers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it may have been some sort of vein of that. It stands in stark contrast to the AF of Hell, which they had the little gompers, you know, speech there of like, uh, oh, we've all got to do mm. our part. You know, well, uh, we're, Ugh, we're. Yes. So many war, propaganda posters. This war will take, um, you know, all the efforts of all the working people. And, stuff. and it's just like, that's just as class collaborationism. Like, totally. That's what the IWW got was like, regardless of their stance of like, personally, you can be involved in however it ends up being, you know, that's you as a class. We understand this is an imperialist war and this is like, you know, we have more in common with the working people of all these countries, internationalism versus trying to pretend that we're on the same side as the Titans of industry, you know? Yeah. Cause they were the ones who were benefiting from this and they were able to see that of like, yeah, fucking JP Morgan's like making out like a bandit. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't die for that cause. <laughs> yeah. And so when it gets to the lumber organizing, that sort of drive in the West Coast and everything during World War One, with the IWW having such a reach, uh, basically what the army did, they sent out, or what the United States government was, they sent out the army to investigate conditions. And they said, well, you should have the army take over this. Uh, paying the workers would be too much and they're causing, you know, all these slowdowns. And even if you give them more money, they're probably, you know, they're red. So they're probably still going to just like, you know, slow shit down and help the Kaiser and everything else. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, propaganda trying to tie the IWW to Germany. Like there's this one cartoon where it was like the Kaiser and the IWW made up like his mustache and his mouth <laughs> or the W's. Yeah. Uh, it was actually pretty clever. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> Don't agree with the message, but like clever force connection there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there was a ton of accusations. Like uh, there was a lot of headlines about it. Like, Oh, there's secretly getting money from Germany or they're secretly funneling money to Germany. Like all this stuff. Like it was very, it was very conspiratorial shit. <laughs> yeah. So the army ended up creating its own fucking division called the Spruce Division. Ugh, okay. To just be lumberjacks. Insane. <laughs> they just start shooting at trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They just start machine gunning them down. They um sent them out there. One of the, the overalls guy, I think, is the one that's saying, like, they, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They were lost. What are they? I think they had a name for them, right? Like a nickname? Well, they had a actual like 
they formed basically a government company union for the Spruce Division called the Loyal Legion of Loggers and Lumberjacks. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and then they called him what the lousy lousy long legged losers or something. <laughs> I was just like, it was a bunch of L's, man. Talk about posting You've L's. Literally taking an L, yeah. <laughs> Four of them. Ooh, not very catchy. Come on, get a better acronym. Yeah. <laughs> At least could have been like the LOLs or something. <laughs> yeah, the Legion of Loggers. That should have just been Yeah, there LOL. you go. LOLs. We're the LOLs. So they did manage to kind of stave off some of, you know, uh, production had really fallen off and they were kind of a stopgap measure there but obviously not as easily to solve the problem as people just like paying people <laughs> yeah right giving people better conditions i mean i love this one quote from that kind of conflict which was uh they wave a flag with one hand and rob you with the other <laughs> mm, yeah i think so <laughs> lots of people in on that game these days i mean yeah where's my fucking tax dollars go to <laughs> Ugh. Kind of the, the last strike action we've got to cover here is the Bisbee strike in Arizona. I believe there's a, a movie specifically about Bisbee, so that, that's been on our list for a minute. Mm, okay. But the, the short story is, it's mining, it's coal and copper mines. They, they go on strike, and the, of course the conspiracy theories blame the strike on Germans. Huh. And the cops deport the IWW members, basically. They go in, round them up, and put them on fucking... Uh, put 1,200 men out on boxcars to New Mexico, uh, which is a pretty long journey. It's, it's like a 24-hour thing without water in fucking July. And they say something like uh, one of the guys doing the deportation or maybe when they arrive is like kind of the only reason they're alive at that point because he's like, oh, this, this is fucked up. Let's give him some water. Let's give him some food or something. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It, they're just treating him like fucking cattle, but yeah. worse, honestly. You'd, you'd get your cattle water. Literally in cattle cars um, and a complete illegal uh, deportation. Like even the United States government was like, okay, yeah, sure. You can't do that. That's that's bad. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Might be. Ugh, Jesus. I mean, yeah, they're rounding up camps of workers. It's It's ridiculous. It's just described as just in the middle of the night and just like in all haste, just like, let's kick these guys out. Uh, I think a woman describes, like, her husband being taken, like, yeah, getting woken up in the middle of the night, and she's fucking screaming, like, how fucking scary is that? Just getting abducted by cops. And this was on the orders of the, like, mining company. Like, the mining company basically told the sheriff, get these guys out of here. And mm -hmm. boom, there you go. Like, if you're ever wondering that's who, who they is the state for. serving, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's their fucking job. So at this point, like we get into kind of the downfall of the IWW. Uh, and I don't want to say downfall because that sounds too harsh, but... It's technically still around. It's still around. They still... In fact, the little Red Hensky cartoon is on their website, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they're still around and, and you can still get involved with them. They seem pretty cool. Um, I, I guess what I mean is the like the, the lessening popularity of this organization and the challenges they faced. Uh, we've already talked about World War One and the impact it had on them and the, the kind of conspiracy theories around that. You have tons of propaganda, which we've covered. Uh, you have all these like jokes about IWW, like the, the joke uh, acronyms I thought were funny of it stands for I want work and I want whiskey, which I'm like, yeah. Yeah, mood, dude. Like, I, I want those things too. <laughs> uh, I'm a triple IWW. Yeah. 
Now, I'm international worker of the world. I also won't work. And I do want whiskey. And I whiskey. want whiskey. <laughs> and I'm IWW3. <laughs> and, and they also talk about, of course, if you got a big organization of people who are very passionate, you're going to have some infighting. And I couldn't tell exactly if this is what popped it off, but it seemed like it was insinuating that the Russian Revolution kind of started it with you started having these heated discussions about like, wow, like some excitement of like, damn, the Ruskies beat us to it. But like, also like, that's pretty cool. (laughs) But it sounded like then you started having discussions about anarchists versus communists and stuff like that. I think that may have been a little pop history or or, or like kind of retroactive, an element of it, but not necessarily the driving force. So the IWW did have a couple of older splits in like 1906, 1908, blah, 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 stuff. Bold, mm-hmm. Pretty boring stuff. Who cares? Organizational stuff. Our, uh, <laughs> uh, our, our man, Daniel DeLeon, was involved in them. Kind of kind of showing his old ass is that he was like like being very doctrinaire because he was, he was kind of an arrogant asshole in some ways. And so he was like, I'm right and everything. Had this break off group that, so you end up at that time, the IWW split into the... Western or Chicago IWW, which called itself the Red IWW. And then you had the Leon's faction ending up uh, based in Detroit, initially called mm. the Detroit IWW or the Yellow IWW. Those are pretty close. That's not even a regional. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Calling and then ending up calling itself something like a different type of union, some other acronym. See, this is why we didn't do an episode just on the IWW, because it would be all this for two hours. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they end up in this sort of split. He's more like political oriented. This is the whole thing that drove him out was like, oh, we got to like try to work with political parties. Yeah, work with political parties, get reforms in addition to labor agitation. But he was also kind of elitist. He was also like, oh, the IW is being taken over by the bummery. And all the like unskilled Ooh, workers and shit like fuck that. Fuck off. Yeah, that was kind of bad. Daniel. Now, the regular IWW was like, their argument was that winning political gains would make the working class softer, would be would make them more comfortable, more conservative, less willing to risk it to take power because they will have gained a little creature comforts of collaborating with and so to, to an extent that, I don't know, that kind of makes some sense. It makes sense to me. It can kind of fool you into thinking you can make a difference that way, when in reality you can make a very, very small difference, and even then, maybe not. Yeah, and then it's a question <laughs> of how much effort are you devoting to that to make that small mm-hmm. of a difference, and then does that end up hurting how you, you because you... you hold those people accountable? Like, yeah. Yeah, for all the effort you put into that, like how many people are you going to lose for the next fight because they're like, I'm kind of good now, like I've got good insurance, you know? So that was one thing that was before the Russian Revolution takes place. Russian Revolution takes place. People start arguing about that and saying, like, it's kind of like the growth of full on and on, like, literal communists, Bolshevists, you know, people saying, let's do that here. Uh, So you have more of that. I think it's not till a little bit later once the Palmer raids happen. That's the thing. Yes. So the Palmer raids happen and it essentially decapitates the wobbly leadership we have done an episode on the first red scare so if you want to just like if you haven't listened to it you can pause and go listen to it you can also get the short version right here which is they raid a bunch of iww offices they do mass arrests they convict a whole bunch of leaders on these really long 
uh, prison sentences, including Haywood. And yeah, they're they're basically getting on charges of obstruction to recruit for World War One, right? Yeah, and a couple of interesting things regarding those arrests. One, you know, notorious racist uh, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer also just arrests random yes. ethnic people because they have a they have his little rant in the documentary. He's just like he just goes off. He's just like, hey, everyone. I'm racist. <laughs> Here's how I think of these <laughs> he shows people. shows his whole ass. Yeah, he raids immigrant homes and just deports people just because he fucking can. So yeah. fuck that guy. Another you mentioned Big Bill Haywood being put up on charges when he was released on bail. Uh, he skips the country. <laughs> goes, <laughs> Understandable. Goes to the Soviet Union <laughs> and ends up becoming one of four Americans honored by the Soviets with burial on the Kremlin Wall Necropolis because right. he, he was cool. Uh, but anyway, the, the IWW lost their leadership. They were in a big, big spit of trouble. And it sounds like they they kept going. They're still around. But, you know, you can tell from the interviews that there it was a definite, it was a loss, you know? Yeah. The thing with that is that the ones that served prison sentences or whatever, eventually they get out in like the 20s. But even that causes more disruption, kind of, because they start taking sides and it kind of fuels the, that, that growing split. And by that point, they have a growing split between centralizers and decentralizers. Centralizers being sort of more of an orthodox uh, communist sort of leaning of like, yeah, we need to take control of the means of production. And, mm, and then more anarchist leaning. Yeah, and more anarcho-syndicalist leaning of like, not just leave it up to... The centralists being more like, who's going to take control of the state? It's going to be the one big union. that That's going to be like society. And the decentralists being way more anarcho and saying like, it's going to be the unions, you know? And it may be very different over here in this part of the country than over here in this part of the country. Really dispersed, you know? And so that's just further division by that point they're they're incredibly by the time you get to like the 50s and stuff uh and the second red scare you know they still go after people with these affiliations and everything but they're just no no longer the force they used to be so it's just not as not really as in the forefront although they they have made a resurgence more recently i think in some of the recent strike organizings and stuff of uh starbucks unionizing although those workers like ended up going with the SEIU union. The, the IWW apparently played an organizing role in some form or fashion. I mean, that's cool. They're still kind of doing that support role though. I think that's still a good play. Yeah. Yeah. Going where the action is for sure. The thing that struck me, not the most, but one of the things that really struck me in this was the prevalence of the IWW and, and these labor organizing actions in the culture and and it's in a pretty short period of time most of the documentary takes place between like what 1915 1917 so it seems like a very heated time period and and we talk about like the red summer and things like that like it was popping off but what i i was very impressed with like how intense it was and i guess like you know visually they're showing they're constantly showing us works of art, whether it's paintings and posters and like uh, buttons and like all this ephemera that goes with it, you know, they're constantly singing songs. And it was so important. And it was so 
we, this is a very early question we got on the show, which is like, do you think we hinder ourselves by borrowing a lot of Russian, uh, you know, imagery, songs, iconography and stuff for the movement? And I'm like, we got it right here. It's right fucking here. Yeah. You know, like if we wanted to, we could go back and get all this sick shit and use it. You know, like, let's put up a fucking black cat on our flag. Let's <laughs> fucking, you know, sing these songs again. And I think it's really cool. I, I just I'm very impressed with that, that depth and breadth of of i guess ephemera from this time period that is so seeped in in labor hell yeah it's appealing even if uh, you know yeah all these songs are old and everything now but they're they're still catchy like i was today just at at school like just in in the hall between (laughs) classes just humming to myself in the good old picket line uh and, and it's kind of this unifier people like abby not a left winger you know uh, kind of a, a moderate more democrat than she thinks she point, is but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know a liberal democrat really let's be honest was in kind of into the documentary mainly because of the music like you know yeah some of the anecdotes and stuff were funny but she was like kind of jamming to the <laughs> songs and they're like, good yeah and and how do they get that they got that by borrowing and and, and appropriating their own culture's past their their own culture's musical tradition and because because so many of these joe hill songs some of these songs in the documentary are repurposed old hymns as we have covered in in some of our music episodes i mean that's that's what they were doing you know and so we could very well do that with things of our own tradition we don't have to go to foreign countries to try to adopt any of that or ape soviet iconography is as cool as a lot of times it is it's sometimes very cool (laughs) (laughs) you know we have our own american tradition and within that i think adjacent to that it also be important to say you know we're not just trying to put together a movement for white americans or what have you like the indigenous people you know have have their own you know traditions and, and immigrant groups have their own traditions that we could also adapt uh, for communist messaging and stuff. I mean, the folk singers did that too with, with black spirituals. Those are heavily involved. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible, it's doable, has been done, should be done. I don't know. Like, I I was, I guess, just struck by, like, there is all this history here. Like, there were just two years of just, like, roiling labor action. And, like, I don't know, like, does this get taught in schools? Probably not. Oh, no. I'll tell you, okay, first yeah. and foremost, we don't have time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we barely can get through what we can get through. But it's deprioritized in that time it's you do also, have. also, yeah, like, you know, they give you standards <laughs> like, and the standards are not. We cut that one first, right? <laughs> yeah, the standards are not like, oh, teach them about how capitalism crushes the workers. <laughs> teach them about who, how many heads the cops bashed in with their fucking sticks. <laughs> right, yeah. Definitely not their priority. Sure, you'll get a radical teacher every once in a while who's like, okay, well, read Eugene Debs's uh, speech <laughs> and compare it to um, A. Mitchell Palmer's speech. And who, who do you think is like good and who do you think is bad here? <laughs> but by and large, real. you're not going to get this treatment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one of my favorite things about the documentary was was getting to experience those pieces of media like that and the interviews were were just so well done like these people just seemed really fucking cool and i am sad that they're gone because like they seemed like such interesting sources of of history and of labor history yeah for sure the closing montage i think 
carried a lot more weight in the re-release, like, or, you know, just watching it today because of that, because it was so later on that you're like, eh, all of these, uh, every, all of these guys are dead. All of them. There's no way. Um, and so it was more poignant that it wasn't yeah. like, oh, damn, I wonder what they're doing now. It was more like, these were their dreams that we just learned about, you know, and we got to kind of peek into their lives and stuff and they got to tell us about things, you know, when they were old, but now they're not there. And I, I really liked that, <laughs> the technique of that ending montage of showing them silent, mm-hmm. like just, you know, hanging out and, and juxtaposing that with the, the IWW's dangerous speech of like if you let these people take over and they're gonna ruin your country and everything and it was just showing like these old people just regular people just being like and who you you know had had multiple you know you had had a conversation with each of these people throughout the course of the film is what it amounts to right yes they became they became people they became lovable people and then yeah just to see just and reasonable people too again i keep going back to that lady being like yeah this seems pretty obvious you know and like i would say joyful people i really liked some of the stories they would tell about like you know the food distribution and the like they showed it was this painting it looked like that that artist showed up quite a bit but it was a painting of like um one of the strike actions and like how they were like setting up places for children and like all these different areas of community basically. And one of the women talks about how like, uh, <laughs> like she's a, the the leaders coming in like uh what's her name elizabeth Gurley mm-hmm. uh flynn she's like she was just so pretty yeah <laughs> just like it just sounded very like beautiful beautiful people beautiful beautiful people i love that it it sounded like kind of fun in a mm-hmm. i mean obviously not fun because like they got their heads bashed in but like the initial community and camaraderie there sounded really cool yeah no it's very much in that in the vein of the uh of the general strike you know sort of uh the Winnipeg general strike and really in general strike, you, you have those initial days of before you go out and like, we can fucking do this. Yeah. You take to the streets, you take up power and autonomy with your fellow man and realize for perhaps probably a fleeting moment that you can do these things together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the first half of the, the, the boat too, you know? Yeah. It's a it's a party boat until it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I also really liked the the old Italian guy who mm. was talking oh, about yeah, oh, yeah. here are the mills and everything and he's like, "Yeah, we, you know, we ran this soup kitchen, you know, and we made sure that it, that everybody had something to eat." And you could tell he had this real pride in what he'd done. Yes. And he even says at some point, "We love America." more than a lot of these people do you know they 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 say oh they're patriotic and everything but we really we believe in the in the things that the american revolution and everything were founded on and and we we're we're trying to actually look out for this and and look out for people and that sort of thing of like again kind of that vein of and, and there's lots of problems with with that sort of a view i think and i don't know if it works as well in 2023 as it does in in 1979 but but this notion of I, I just liked his pride i just liked his like we did this thing for ourselves yeah no i agree and i, I think it can be a good onboarding ramp like i've seen a lot of people and i think i myself maybe fell into this camp of like 
it can be patriotic to want better better things for people, but because of America's nasty, nasty history, it's like, why don't we just throw the whole man out at this point? <laughs> <laughs> but if that helps somebody get their head around it of like, yeah, you don't, you can be patriotic if you want, because, but, you know, show me what that means to you. You know, right. like, are you taking care of your community? Are you fighting for workers? Who are you fighting for is, yeah. is always the question. Patriotic in the sense of being like a good spirited fan of a sports team, like. That's fine yeah, sure. patriotism. <laughs> like, that's okay. <laughs> I guess. You can do that. It's patriotism. a little cringe if it's a fucking American flag or whatever, but whatever. It's okay. <laughs> but again, a good spirited fan of a sports team is not going to be like, you need to stand when we play our fight song. Like, you know, or. <laughs> they just buy the shirts. <laughs> yeah. They, they just, they show up, they have a drink, they cheer people on, they watch them on TV. You know, they go for them during the Olympics. Like, that's all. <laughs> that's honestly I've talked about it before that that's what that's what states should be it's just charming little regions countries should just be well that's your Olympic team I guess yeah <laughs> you know? like fuck it like we don't need any of those like official <laughs> designations and borders it should just be like a cute regional thing <laughs> yeah like a, like you know it's kind of a department and maybe we compete against the other ones to see who's coolest and who can like help their people the most or something but that's it <laughs> yeah friendly competition yeah you know but i like that you know his his pride in that and in that ending montage everyone's you know getting to see uh i, I guess having you know having built it up the whole movie of here are the real people here you know not, not the only but here's a selection of the real people involved in the iww he like this organization sort of expressed their dreams and they fought for this because it was putting their dreams into motion. This is how they thought they could better themselves, their community, their country, the working class, you know, and, and here's kind of how it played out. Initially, I think they sort of, it, it's a sad note of defeat and then they kind of transition there at the end. You know, they start, it's, it gets this like positive spin when they end up with hold the fort and everything. It's a really good ending. I mean, it makes me want more of these kinds of documentaries of like, you know, what are old people today talking about? Uh, what do they remember in terms of labor actions in, you know, in the seventies or protest movements in the sixties? Like we need to get those things documented thoroughly. Um, I don't know. I think I'm more likely to see a biopic or a fictionalized version of, of historical events from more recent times instead of documentaries. I mean, there, there are documentaries now, but I feel like they're much more focused on mm, maybe smaller events or very specific events. Yeah. Or like uh, murders or true crimes or something. Yeah, there's a lot of true crime. I would love a modern version of this that got into into like 60s and 70s like revolutionary movements. That'd be so cool. Yeah. So if you have recs for that, so let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it ends with with one of the the old ladies. Uh, I want to say she's she is some sort of immigrant. I did not look up where she is from. To me, her accent sounded Italian, but I don't know. I don't either. I thought Eastern European maybe, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> and and she describes she just describes the continuing fight basically of like, if you're a worker, this is what you need to be doing. And you know, she like spits in her hands and everything of like, if you do this, then you're on our side kind of yeah. thing. Without these, nothing moves. I love it. I love it. She has such a clear, not even vision. She has such a clear analysis of what's going on in a way that most people today just don't. 
Yeah, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. Mm. You know, that's yeah, good shit. That is, uh, that's that's the truth of the working class. If you're wondering, am I in the working class? There you go. That's the litmus test. That's all you gotta know. <laughs> yeah, there's a spectrum of it. Some of us are comfier than others, but you're still on our side, and you should work so that you are more comfy and that everyone is vastly more comfy. Hell yeah. Okay, uh, my review, uh, extremely positive. I think I would give it a, I'd give it a four out of five just because I think I liked it. I don't know like how much rewatch value it would have for me. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process of watching it. You see, yeah, I don't have, I don't have like a firm thing. I can say like, I wish they did this more. So yeah. sorry. <laughs> That's kind of a wobbly, a wobbly review for a wobbly movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a fan of half stars. I'm gonna do four and a half. Four and a half it is. I think it's great. It's, it's my second go through with it, like second big engagement with it. Um, it was an earlier movie in my sort of radicalization canon. Ah, got a little soft spot for it. Yeah. So I, I feel like I have a fuller understanding of the big picture and kind of how everything works together now. So where it just, it just makes more sense. Whereas That's before a cool it was way just, to revisit it. Yeah, before it was just kind of cool. It was like, damn, like, holy shit, people were doing this stuff. Like, that's really cool. Um, but maybe it was a little out of my reach. Like, I didn't really get why they were so, you know, adamant or like why, oh, why the, why the Cavaliers have to be so mean to them, you know, sort of liberal bullshit, you know. Maybe the uh, the simplicity that we really like here only really works if you do have that background knowledge of of why it is so simple you know because i could see i could see it you know maybe someone who is more liberal or conservative or something watching this and being like well it's not as simple as you take the means of production and you know you can't just say doesn't that sound nice and you know justifying the cops actions and things like that like i think there are ways to watch this with a you know an ungenerous view so i think i don't yeah i don't know if this would be like the first thing i would show somebody but, I don't, you know, it's certainly not the last. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, you know, I think it was powerful even then. But, yeah, you're right that, like, if you're looking at this, you know, let's say more, more charitably with a liberal lens, you would be like, well, I'm glad capitalism has learned some lessons from this. If, oh, the businesses are not such assholes anymore you know they like good we got the eight hour work day done it's like no bitch we just we're just fucking yeah. starting <laughs> or this is yeah this is how we got things like the weekend great mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, oh yeah i may maybe well, some of my star review let me go back and explain i think too the sound mixing was off for me like i had to like fuck around to hear people i wish i think i just i didn't have subtitles and i really wanted subtitles because some of these people were hard to understand oh yeah Oh, tell me about it. So I, I watched most of it at the house, and then I had part of it that I watched on my conference period at school. But at school, <laughs> the only one I could get, I couldn't log into the other thing and get my my like downloaded modern one with the subtitles and the remaster. So I had the Spanish subtitles with English audio. So yeah, I, I agree. They are sometimes hard to understand, and I was like working with the Spanish subtitles. You're like, oh, I bet he said this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I almost wish I had done that because, yeah, the, just some of the act, not even like accents, but it's just like, I don't know, the way they talked, I guess. And, no, it's and the accent. sound mixing. It's like regional. Uh, it, There's some accents for it's, sure. Um, yeah. Just because 
you know, people are so much older in this that they have stronger regional accents. Yes, yes. So yeah, the accents and and, uh, I think the sound mixing also made a big difference for me. So yeah, that's the only, I think, knock I would give it, which like, hey, it's an old ass movie. Like sometimes that happens. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next week, shooting that shit. The huge. Hell yeah. Come angry. Come angry, leave angry. (laughs) Maybe, hopefully not leave sad, which we do that a lot too. Come chill, leave angry. (laughs) Yeah, sure. However you want to get there, just get there. Depends on your reaction to things. You might leave chill. <laughs> you might be like, damn. Maybe. Yeah. That sucked. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> They're going through it, but I'm chill. Yeah. You're just grateful. Like, man, I'm really glad I'm not getting blown up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Till then. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.